0: We could really say that for John writing this gospel, he, Jesus came to reveal His glory, and John wrote his gospel so that we can see it, right? Because we weren't we weren't witnesses to the uh, physical life of Christ, but we can read the gospel and still yet behold His glory. And this is hugely significant, actually, because when God gives us eyes to see the glory of Christ, He then uses this glory as sort of the the conduit to receive His grace. So this is hugely significant. Uh, i of the train of thought here. We, we read the Gospels, we see the glory of Jesus Christ, and then as a result, we receive grace from Him. This is the implication of John chapter 1, verses 14 and 16. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glorious of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 16, for from... His fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Beholding glory leads to receiving grace. And I hope that'll be our experience even today as we look into the text. And, and really, my desire here, I, I think John's desire here, is that we would behold Christ and we would see more of His glory even today. The question as we move into the text is at the beginning of John's Gospel, who is this Jesus? Now you've been working through the Gospel of Mark, and Mark has his perspective, obviously the same Jesus, but Mark wants to highlight certain things about Jesus, and John does as well. For John, who is this Jesus? We just look at chapter 1. John the Baptist has declared that he is the Lamb of God. Jesus has told some of his early followers that they're going to see great things, even greater things. So who is this wonder-working God? Who is this man who turned tables at the temple, who spoke to Samaritans, and ate with sinners, and... Healed the lame, taught with authority, and walked on water. Who is this God in the flesh who's come to make the Father known? He is the Son of God. And John wrote his gospel so that we would believe in him and that we would receive eternal life from him. So this morning, we want to see Jesus. We want to see the incomparable Jesus from the gospel of John chapter 2. From that First passage there, 1 to 11, we're going to see three characteristics of Christ that compel us to draw near to him. Three characteristics of Christ that compel us to draw near to him. But let's pray again and prepare our hearts to receive the word. Father, we're so thankful that you've made yourself known through your son Christ and that we can behold his wondrous character, his person, his works, his redemptive plan as we read from your scripture. We're thankful the spirit that gives us eyes to see and behold more clearly and apply it to our lives. And we're thankful that we can see the glory of Christ. We pray we'd get a glimpse even today. God, would you remove the veils? Would Would you just pull back the curtain a little bit so we can get a, a better gaze, a fuller, more complete picture of this person, Jesus Christ, and what he's accomplished for our good. And may it minister to our hearts even here this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're not already there, please turn your Bibles to John chapter two. Just to give you kind of a roadmap here. Uh, With the first and longest point, actually most of the message will be in point one, we're going to work our way through this incredible true story and highlight Jesus' compassion. With the second and third points, we'll briefly double back and see kind of more of Jesus' character as we understand (coughs) the divine purpose and result of the miracle. As I've said, the main goal is to observe the three characteristics that compel us to draw near to Christ. And the first is this, Jesus cares, so bring your burdens. Jesus cares, so bring your burdens. We begin in verse, chapter 2, verse 1, sets the scene. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So the setting is a wedding that's fairly ordinary and common, right? Well, not for the bride, groom, and their families. Right, the wedding is a really big deal. Think my big fat Greek wedding, only Middle Eastern and longer. This, this is the most significant and carefully planned event in this family's life. The wedding feast would take about a week. It'd be a week of, a, of excitement and celebration and music and fanfare. Every night was a party with and the ceremony of the wedding itself would happen midweek but it's just I mean it's a it's a festival it's a sight to behold it's a really big deal for the entire community and this particular wedding took place in Cana at Cana in Galilee Cana is a, a modest town about 13 kilometers north of the smaller town Nazareth where Jesus grew up and Jesus at the time that the Initially here, he's about 35 kilometers to the northeast in Bethsaida. Notice now that it also says the wedding occurs on the third day. Well, on the third day from what? Right? You, don't, you don't usually say that like, hey, you want to go to a movie on the third day? <laughs> what does that mean? Well, on the third day from what? Well, John's actually given us some clues here in chapter 1. He gave several markers in verse 29, 35, and 43. All say the next day. So if you go all the way back to John chapter 1, verse 19, there we were introduced to John the Baptist. And then on the next day, John the Baptist declared that Jesus is the Lamb of God. On the next day, Jesus meets Peter, Andrew, and John. On the next day, Jesus meets Philip and Nathaniel, And three days later, Jesus and his followers are at a wedding. Why is that significant? Well, if you add them all up, what you have here is they arrive at the wedding on the seventh day. John so far has unpacked a week of activity in the life of Christ. And already a theological theme is beginning to surface here. Already John was giving us some clues to what he wants to teach us. In the beginning, chapter 1, verse 1, it said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. You see, Jesus is the creator. He made the world in six days and rested on the seventh. Here, John will point to Jesus as the one who brings about a new creation. Right in the beginning, God made all things, seven days. On the seventh, he rested. Here, a week of activity on the seventh day, Jesus arrives at a wedding in which he will provide rest. In which he will show at least this small group of people that he is a place to find refreshment. We don't have to go to a temple anymore. We worship God in spirit and truth. There's a new way of approaching God. And as we'll see, Jesus replaces the old system of death with a new life-giving gospel. So Jesus' first recorded sign takes place on the seventh day, which again represents the Sabbath day of spiritual rest. Thus we could say in Christ we find rest. He went to a wedding to give rest. In Matthew chapter eleven, twenty-eight. 28, it says, Come to me, all who labor and heavy, are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus is a tender and caring Savior. He's gentle and gracious. We can bring our burdens to him, and this will be important for the wedding couple as we move forward. Thankfully, the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus was invited to the wedding as well. Mary and Jesus to some degree, we're not sure how much, but Mary for sure was a close family friend of the bridegroom. We know this because Mary was uh, arrived before the guests arrived. She was among the first to know that the wine ran out. She is deeply concerned about the bridegroom's honor. And she has authority to direct servants. So Mary has a purse close, purse close relationship with the bridegroom. Jesus is there no doubt to enjoy the feast. Right? He's just there at the party. Everyone wants to go to the biggest party in town, and Jesus wants to enjoy the fellowship and the and the fun and the atmosphere as well. And he's brought his re- recent followers with him. These disciples were likely not invited but welcomed upon arrival after all Jesus had only met them days earlier. With the possible exception of Nathanael because Nathanael was actually from Cana. So Jesus is at he's at the festival. Uh, he's in, enjoying the, the wedding party and the celebration. After all, weddings, marriage was Jesus' idea. He's there, but he's, he's there for more than just the festivities. As we'll see, it's the Father's appointed time to begin his ministry. Again, you've been going through the book of Mark. Here we see where it all begins. And it begins, or... The purpose, I should say, is brought to the surface with a problem. We have a problem. If you've ever helped coordinate the -the behind-the-scenes details of a wedding, you know that sometimes there are problems. In this case, the wine ran out. Verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, that is Jesus, they have no wine. Now, there's really no modern-day equivalent here. I mean, if you were at a wedding today or coordinating a wedding today, it'd be embarrassing to run out of wine or maybe I should say sparkling cider, but not devastating. If you were short on food or on wedding cake or um, something, something of that nature went wrong, I mean, it'd be unfortunate but forgivable. Not so in the wedding in Cana. As I said, this is the most significant and carefully planned event of their life. The bridegroom spent a year planning planning this event. And why did he do it? Why was he so meticulous? Well, he needed to and wanted to prove his worth to the bride's, the fiance's family. He wants to demonstrate to them that he's a responsible provider. And this is event number one. This is an opportunity for the um, bride's family to say, hey, you're marrying a responsible provider, uh, caretaker, he can... He can plan a wedding, I'm sure he can take care of you. It's shameful to run out of wine, because the bridegroom's family spent as much money as possible on their son's wedding banquet. So to run out of wine would reveal their poverty. It would be embarrassing. The extravagant party was a reflection of the groom's family. So again, limited wine could cause the bride's family to doubt, to question, to wonder to experience shame. Thus, failure to supply enough wine was a bitter social disgrace. It was of lasting shame. In fact, the bridegroom could even be financially responsible to pay the bride's family for the embarrassment. And get this, actually, in this culture, the bridegroom could be sued. They could bring a lawsuit against him for running out of wine, for blowing the most important event of their life. This shame could follow the newlyweds and their family their their entire life. This was the kind of stuff you you leave town for. Thus, practically speaking, this was a big deal. And on one level, and kind of a more physical, practical level, um, it was important because no wine means no drinking water. You needed wine to purify the water to make it safe to drink. So they just have nothing to drink. It's not as oh, okay. No wine, go on to the next thing. Nope, nothing to drink. So it, it's a big deal all around. It's a massive problem, but we got to ask the question, why is this in Scripture? Why, why is it here? I mean, Certainly there were weddings all the time. Um, why, why include the fact that Jesus went to this wedding and this problem arises at this time? What's going on? We'll also see Jesus cares. Jesus cares. So Mary tells him about the desperate problem. She turns to Jesus because he's, her firstborn son, likely Joseph had already died, so Jesus is the man of the house, as it were, and she relies on his resourcefulness. Well, that's the point, kind of within the story. Now think about kind of the theological significance that John is wanting to draw out already. In the Jewish culture, leftovers were customary. You never came even close to running out. You always had an abundance. Mary's statement, unbeknown to her then conveys this kind of theological truce that's even more serious and desperate. Sure, they've won out of run, they have run out of wine, but listen, they have no gospel wine. They have no hope. They have no living water. They're spiritually dry and empty. They're stuck in the rut of Jewish traditions and ceremonial laws. They don't understand that they can enjoy freedom and abundant life in the Messiah. In those terms, Mary's words beckon Jesus not only to rescue the bridegroom from severe embarrassment, but also to reveal himself as a long-awaited, much-anticipated Messiah. They have no hope. They need a Savior. Back to the wedding, the wine shortage would cause a fearful frantic. But remember, Jesus is there. And that's good news. We can bring our burdens to him and find rest. Jesus cares. He's mindful of details. He numbers the hairs on her head. He's able to feed the birds and clothe the flowers of the field. So we need not worry. Jesus is compassionate, which makes his response a bit unexpected. Verses four and five. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now now, let me just say here, um, don't try this at home. Uh, next time your mom or your, or your wife brings you a concern, I don't recommend saying, Woman, what does that have to do with me? <laughs> In English, it sounds a little bit harsh, a little bit disrespectful, but it really isn't actually. The word... Woman was a tip, typical respectful greeting of the time, kind of like uh, dear lady or, or ma'am. Uh, Jesus used the same word to tenderly speak to the woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery, or Mary Magdalene after the resurrection. What's unusual is not that Jesus uses the word woman. What's unusual is that Jesus is speaking to his mother when he uses the term. Right? You wouldn't usually use uh, such a term to address uh, a close relationship like your mother. It seems Jesus is actually politely distancing himself from Mary. It's time for him to prioritize his father's will. Earthly relationships would not control or oblige him, and that's why he says, "What does that have to do with me?" Mary and Jesus—they have different interests. You know, Mary sees the circumstantial concerns; she sees they're out of wine. This is going to be embarrassment. This is a problem. Do something. And Jesus says, you know, I've, I've come for a much bigger purpose. I've come for a messianic purpose. What does this daily problem um, in this particular moment have to do with me? After all, a lot has changed since Jesus left home. He's been baptized, received the Holy Spirit. He's been tempted in the wilderness. He's been commissioned. He's even gained his first followers. So at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus redefines his relationship with his family. Mary must no longer seek Jesus' help based on their mother-son relationship. She, like everyone else, comes to Him as the Son of God. As such, Jesus told Mary, My hour has not yet come. The hour Jesus refers to is the time for Him to publicly reveal Himself and His messianic glory through miracles and through His death and resurrection. He's saying, My time as the Messiah to reveal myself it's not yet come in other words it's not time for the Messiah authenticating glory revealing miracles which will lead to his death we're not there yet it's not the hour of his crucifixion when he'll die to make purification for sin it's not the time for him to fully reveal his redemptive purposes well spoiler alert Jesus does perform the miracle so he asks what's going on he just said it's not my hour it's not not yet come as though he's He's going to say, I'm not going that direction. And yet he goes forward with the miracle anyway. What's happening is Jesus says, it's not time for my death. But let me give you just a hint of what's coming ahead. Let me give you a sign that points to my future. Let me give you a partial glimpse into the fullness that's coming. The sign will cost Jesus' life because it begins the countdown to his crucifixion. Once he makes himself even even privately known, we're just on the clock for him to count down to the ultimate display of his glory on the cross. So that hasn't come yet, but Jesus says, let me give you some insight. In a subtle but significant way, these verses actually point to the gospel. Think about this for a minute. When Adam met, first met Eve, he called her woman. Woman. Later, when God cursed them for their sin, he promised to put enmity between the serpent and the woman. He would crush Satan under Christ's feet. So with, with a sort of theological flair, Jesus refers to his mother as woman. After all, he is the promise seed of woman. The only, time, the only other time Jesus calls Mary woman is when his Satan-crushing mission is complete and he's hanging on the cross. Two times in John, the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus refers to Mary as woman. Never again, until the very end of his ministry, hanging on the cross, Jesus refers to Mary as woman. Je- John wants to unpack this kind of theological point here that the, the flow of redemption is that the Redeemer has come. The one promised in Genesis 3.15 who would crush Satan's head, he is arrived. Indeed, his hour had not yet come, but it was fast approaching. So maybe even Mary found hope in those words not yet. When Jesus said, "My hour is not yet come," maybe Mary heard, well, it's not yet come, but it is coming, right? Why not choose now? Why not help this couple at this time? Why not show your glory through love and compassion to this family? Well, Mary probably asked more than she realized, but Jesus is eager to give more than is asked. He's generous. He gives grace upon grace to those who believe and submit to him. So Mary shakes off the gentle rebukes and tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. Her words exemplify persevering faith. She instructed the servants in faith, not knowing how Jesus will meet the need, but believing that he will do whatever he deems appropriate. And that's a good word for us, isn't it? Do whatever Jesus tells you. If Jesus tells you to do something strange or difficult to understand, we can trust him. Maybe you remember back in the 80s and 90s, there was kind of this uh, WWJD fad. What would Jesus do? You know, had the bracelets, I mean, that had everything, t-shirts, hats, the whole works. Maybe it should have been DWHTY. Do whatever he tells you. Right? I like your DWTHY bracelet. It's nice. You know, it just reminds me to do whatever he tells me. Well, in this case, what did did Jesus tell the servants? He told them in verse 6. We read, Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Now water was kept in these stone jars to preserve the purity and the coolness. They were used for cleansing hands and feet and utensils before a meal. The fact that there were six jars, may or may not, I don't want to read too much into it, but May relate to the six days of creation, right? Six days of creation, seventh day you rest. So, six days of creation would be representative of work. On those six days, you did work. Relating to the Jewish purification, right? Jewish system of work. Well, Jesus is bringing in a new system, as it were. He's, he's redeeming the old system. That'll be done by faith, not works. I don't want to read too much into that possibility. Maybe, maybe they're just six jars and John gives an eyewitness account. What's really interesting, however, is how much water they hold. 120 to 180 gallons. That's 4,500 to 7,000 liters, which will become 600 to 800 bottles of wine. I mean, we're talking about thousands of servings of wine. In today's terms, if we think about like $50 a bottle, because after all, this is Jesus' wine, that's 30 to $50,000 worth of wine in Canadian dollar. In other words, this is going to be lavish generosity and abundance. The bountiful supply of wine will end up being a generous wedding gift to the otherwise poor family. I mean, think about it. There's going to be wine left over and it's worth a lot of money to pay for the, pay for the wedding to, uh, just to be generous. Uh, no doubt there was also wine left over at the end of the wedding so that the wedding party and the servants could actually know that the miracle happened. You know, right? The, see, like, did you see that? I mean, what was going on there? Like, I, I, th- I thought I saw water turning into wine, but that couldn't have happened. What? There's the wine. It did happen. The wine left over authenticates the miracle. They're just able to see it. It really did happen. Hey, let's have another bottle of that Jesus wine. It really happened. And John wants us to see that. The Jewish rites of purification is mentioned for the sake of the Gentile readers to know what the jars were used for, but there's more to it. He also wants to portray Jesus' ministry of replacing Jewish traditions and custom with something better. Jesus took Israel's purification ritual and replaced it with a new way of purification, namely gospel wine. The water, you know, you wash your hands and your feet, your utensils. The new gospel wine will be representative and symbolic of the new order, the cleansing that will come through his blood. In other words, if you want to be clean, you don't turn to man-made ritual and jars, you turn to Jesus. In this case, turning to Jesus required the servants to fill the jars with water, and the servants obeyed. They filled them all the way up to the brim. This is another eyewitness detail, right? John's there, and he recognizes that the water jars were filled all the way to the top, all the way to the brim. And this is significant for at least two reasons. One, it shows that Jesus didn't add anything, right? It's not like he's got a grape juice concentrate in his back pocket, and he just kind of drops that in there. There's no room all the way to the top. wants to make sure this is a miracle. Maybe if you go to a coffee house and they say, would you like room for cream? There was no room. It was all water. But there's another significant reason I think it kind of portrays this, the full completion of the Jewish ceremonial cleansing. You know, that way of doing things has come, has been filled, it's full, it's complete. The new order, symbolized by the wine, could now be drawn from the jars. Notice that the the intimate connection between the old and the new. If you think of the old covenant, it's come to its fullness and its completeness. Now we'll take from that old covenant, that that old um, covenant that God had ordained, and we'll, we'll see that how that transitions in the new covenant through Christ and how he inaugurates the new covenant. He fulfills it, doesn't abolish it. Ironically, filling the jars with wine would defile them, rendering them unclean for purification purposes. Again, Jesus was destroying the old system and replacing it with grace and truth. So Jesus' first command was simple enough, fill the jars of water, and they did to the brim. But the next command is more difficult. The servants are told to draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. Now remember, the servants didn't know what's going on. They didn't have their pocket ESV Bible, flip over to John 2, like, oh yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to turn in wine, it's going to go great, let's do it. They don't know what's happening And I believe, actually, that the water didn't turn to wine until after the servants drew it out and took it to the headmaster. I think this because of verse 9. Verse 9 says, When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The servants drew water, not wine. So if you picture this, Jesus says, fill the jars. They fill the jars. He says, take some to the headmaster. They, they draw out water. And sometime between drawing out water and that touching the headmaster's lips, it becomes wine. Now, the servants were accustomed to obeying. But, but this is just staggering. I, I mean, this is astonishing. I mean, this would be disastrous. It's one thing to run out of wine. That would be shameful and embarrassing. But then to pretend like you didn't run out of wine and instead bring water in its place... Well, this is just going to be awful. I mean, this would be so embarrassing, outrageous. Nevertheless, the servants obeyed unquestionably. Jesus spoke and they obeyed. I'm sure they had their DWHTY bracelets on. They knew just what to do. Let me just circle back with just a few more comments about the scene here and the drive home some application the master of the feast is mentioned in the way he's mentioned actually to authenticate the miracle. Right? He doesn't know what happened. He doesn't know Jesus is behind the scenes doing his uh, Messiah thing. What he does know is that he just tasted the best wine he's ever tasted. And he confirms that by saying to the bridegroom, hey, man, you just served some pretty awesome wine. And the servants and the disciples and those who are part of the inner circle, they know it used to be water. Water. So the fact that the master of the feast authenticates it uh, as wine, just one more evidence of the truthfulness of the miracle. But also notice the master of the feast tastes the wine and then assumed an explanation. He assumed the bridegroom saved the best wine till the end, right? And why, why wouldn't he assume that, right? You don't usually assume a miracle. Oh, this is good wine. Must turn some water into wine back there. But he didn't assume that. He assumed he, he saved the best wine But really, that's not what happened, is it? Of course, the bridegroom didn't save the best wine till the end. He was the the one responsible for the wine running out. There's no praise to the bridegroom here. Enter Jesus, the perfect bridegroom. He's the one who saves the day. He's the one who provided the best wine. And his timing is perfect. He discreetly saves the day without stealing the show. He doesn't draw attention to himself but performs a miracle behind the scenes without undermining the wedding celebration, right? He doesn't step onto the scene and say, folks, we got a pretty big problem. There's no wine, but don't panic. I don't know if y'all know this, but I'm the Messiah. I'm just gonna turn some of this water into wine and we can keep the festivities going. He doesn't do that. Very caringly, very thoughtfully, Jesus saves the day for only... <laughs> A select few to know, primarily his disciples, because he's caring. He doesn't want the bridegroom and his family to experience shame. We can just go on. He can be the hero, as it were. In verse 10, the reference to the good wine and the poor wine is better translated best wine and cheap wine. It's a comparative. The wine Jesus made was categorically superior. It wasn't just good wine. It was the best wine. It was superlative wine. As is everything in the new messianic age. Thus the underlying theological truth, the most significant point of the story, I think, the new wine has arrived. The new wine has arrived. Jesus is here. Until now, they only have the water of Jewish purification, which doesn't actually make anyone pure. It's stale, dead water. It doesn't even taste good, and you can get sick from it. But now... The fountain of living water brings the wine from the vine. And if you abide in him, you experience communion with the Father, and your joy is made full. The good wine, the gospel wine, has arrived. What Christ gives is better than anything else. Put simply, Jesus is better. He is better than Moses, Aaron, Joshua, and the law. He is a better prophet, priest, and king. He offers a better and final sacrifice. He purifies our conscience so that we can serve the living God. He sanctifies us, his people, through his blood. He is the substance, not the shadow. Indeed, the good wine has arrived. So make no mistake, Jesus is the holy God, our Lord whom we obey and the final judge. But you must also know him as the tender and affectionate Savior, the one to whom you can bring your burdens. The one who brings the gospel wine. We're all heavy laden with burdens, sometimes more tangibly than others. We're all familiar with the broken reality of this cursed world. We all experience physical, emotional, and relational pain. Every week, our elders, at our elders' meeting, we, we pray for you and for people in, our, in the north by name. Pray for many of you struggling with chronic illness and life-threatening diseases, troubled marriages, unbelieving children, depression, loneliness, anxiety, hurt in the past, and in some cases despair. One truth the gospel writers make clear is that Jesus cares. He bears your burdens and redeems you from the curse of sin and shame. But you must believe. You must believe, and the miracle's display is glorious. He's glorious so that it will produce faith. So after describing the miracle, John actually tells us the purpose and result of this miracle. He wants to give us some insight of what's happening and why it has happened. Let's consider these one at a time as we press home an application and draw to a close here. Again, these last two points... They reveal something about Christ that compels us to draw near to him. And then point number two, we see that Jesus captivates. So behold his glory. We've already seen that Jesus cares so you can bring your burdens to him. We also see that Jesus captivates. So behold his glory. The purpose of the miracle is to manifest Jesus' glory. We see this in verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. Glory. Now Jesus' glory is his greatness and his beauty and his goodness and his worth. It's the radiant his radiant character put on display to see. So here this miracle showcases Jesus. It puts him on display. Not for everyone to see, more of a private, smaller miracle in this first case, but nonetheless, Jesus is shown to be incredible. Well, I think there are several ways Jesus reveals his glory in this passage. I'll highlight a few. Jesus reveals his glory simply through the miracle itself. After all, that's the purpose of miracles. One author defined a miracle as a supernatural act of God that glorifies Jesus. That's what a miracle does. It's what it is. So miracles identify the Messiah, authenticate his claims, and reveal his character. Jesus has subtly but, and theologically yet powerfully portrayed that the new gospel wine has come, This the new covenant is being inaugurated, it's coming, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to be um, kind of officiated at his death, resurrection, and the coming of the Spirit. That's all on its way. And Jesus authenticates those kind of theological claims by doing a miracle. By showing that he is who he says he is. And in the process, he strengthens faith and glorifies his Father. Well, there's another way... I think Jesus reveals his glory here. And that is as the creator with divine power. Uh, Making wine was an arduous process that required harvested grapes, a wine press, wineskins, storage, and adequate time to ferment. Not for Jesus. Jesus effortlessly created wine from water because he's the creator. All things were made through him, including the believer as a new creation. As we behold his glory were transformed into his image. Here's another way. Again, Jesus reveals his glory through the superiority of the new covenant. The redemption story, think about this for a minute, the redemption story begins at a wedding in the Garden of Eden. All the way back to Genesis chapter 2, we see this, this wedding. And it ends with a wedding at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Well, it seems only fitting then for the new era of Christ's public ministry to be ushered in at a wedding. In Cana, Jesus was not performing just some neat trick or or merely supplying a need, although he was doing that. He cared for the couple. He didn't want them to be ashamed. But he's doing something more. He's intentionally announced his arrival as the Messiah. Water for Jewish purification becomes the wine of the Messianic age. He ushered in the age of wine, that is, the time of life and joy in him. In the Old Testament, wine represents joy, satisfaction, abundance, and restoration. In Jesus, the new wine of the gospel delivers what the old covenant could not. Wine may give a temporary kind of false sense of happiness, but it always runs out. Even if you have 600 or 800 bottles, it runs out. Jesus offers abundant living water that quenches our soul thirst. And this wine as we said, was enjoyed by faith, not by works. So Jesus changes the water of Judaism into the wine of Christianity. The water of Christlessness into the wine of richness and fullness. The water of the law into the wine of the gospel. Of course, this new covenant wine is far superior. The law reveals sin and the need for a Savior, but it fails to provide redemption. Repeated sacrifices were necessary, but Jesus provided the final sin sacrifice. The law sets the term for proper worship and living holy, right? You read the line, this is not what it means to worship, this is how we live a holy life, but the law doesn't enable the worshiper to fulfill its demands. Jesus gives a new heart. The law lacks compelling motivation to obey it, but Christ compels us with his glorious love. The application for you and me is pretty simple Behold his glory. What that means is take long looks at Jesus. Think deeply about his character and his gospel. Jesus captivates us with his compassion, his power, his tenderness, and his wisdom. As you read scripture, you just see the person work of Jesus unfold before you. Behold his glory. We see his glory when we abide in him through faith and obedience. We see his glory when we have communion with him in worship and prayer. And we see his glory when we believe his works and trust his promises. Jesus captivates, so behold his glory. There's one final characteristic of Christ that compels us to draw near to him. And that says, Jesus can, so believe in him. Jesus cares, so bring you burdens. Jesus captivates, so behold his glory. Now Jesus cares, so believe in him. The result of the miracle is faith. Look again at verse 11. This is the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. When you witness Jesus revealing his character, you believe. And if you believe, you will see his glory. As Jesus said to Mary and Martha when Lazarus had died, if you believe, you'll see glory. When you get a taste of God's glory, you're drawn near to him, right? When when the veil is pulled back and you see the glory of Christ, you you draw near. You can't resist. You surrender to him as you trust and you seek him as your treasure. What is faith? Faith is is trusting the promises of God depending on the word of God and remaining faithful to the son of God. Faith is trusting and treasuring Jesus Christ because you believe he is who he says he is and he will do what he says he will do. I think there are at least three evidences of faith in this passage. Let me just run over them quickly for our encouragement. First is the way Mary interacted with Jesus. We already saw some of this. Mary interacted with Jesus in a way that exemplifies faith. Think about this. What do you do when the wine of your life runs out? Where do you go when the wine runs out? Mary went to Jesus. Her faith is plain, pure, and powerful. She's bold because she believes. Again, she doesn't necessarily know how Jesus is going to meet the need, but she believes Jesus is the right man, right person to go to. And Mary's faith becomes a catalyst for Jesus' action. Her faith initiates the miracle. She makes a respectful request that demonstrates unrelenting faith and moves Jesus to action. And then Mary acts the miracle. She puts her her trust in Jesus and rests in His grace. She she expressed her concern to the Son of God. And then her prayer was followed by obedience. Telling the servants, do whatever He tells you. The principle here is pray in faith and act in faith. Pray according to the need. And then walk out your faith believing that God will provide in the ways that He deems fit. Express your request. Make the need known. Then trust God accordingly. Mary's an example of faith in really kind of another way, too. That's personalizing your faith. Think about this for a minute. Mary weaned and raised Jesus from infancy. In a sense, she was the first person to grow up in a Christian home with Jesus as her son. Try not to become child focused in that home. But Mary gets it she is the Messiah, Jesus is the Messiah. As his public ministry begins and he charts his course to the cross, worship and trust must characterize their relationship. The pathway to favor is faith, not family. Faith makes you a follower of Jesus. Even the mother of Jesus must submit to him. Well, next we think about the servants and their faith. The servants exhibited a type of faith, we could say. Again, it appears that the water turned into wine sometime between the servant drawing it and bringing it to the head master. Thus their faith was actually instrumental in accomplishing the miracle, right? They, were, they took part in accomplishing the miracle. They received Jesus' word and they obeyed in faith. Now, it's not necessarily a saving faith, right? They haven't put their hope in Jesus as their savior, but they've trusted him. At the risk of looking foolish or embarrassing, The servants took the water to the master of the feast. And likewise, we work out our obedience in faith by relying on grace. And God causes a transformation in our hearts. He rewards and strengthens our faith. Lastly, just think about the disciples. They're not really mentioned in the story much until the end, when this is a faith strengthening for them. But they rightly responded to this glory sighting with faith. These four or five disciples have only been Jesus a few days, and now they've seen this first sign and the result is faith they witnessed Jesus' compassion, power and they believed John the Baptist had told them Jesus is the promised Messiah, now they're beginning to see it for themselves and believe it note however that their experience strengthened their faith, right? but it didn't produce it it didn't produce it Signed faith is not the same as Savior faith It's not sufficient to believe only in his works. It's only faith in Jesus that is saving faith. In fact, it's a dangerous mistake to witness or read about miracles and fail to see the glory of the miracle worker. It would be a mistake to see, man, this is pretty amazing, and not have your eyes turned to the one who accomplished it, who did it, the one whom it reveals. Many of the people in the gospel saw miracles, but they refused to believe. Some of the religious leaders actually saw the signs and they could not, the signs were undeniable, right? The uh, Jewish religious leaders at the end of the gospel were saying, hey, we cannot deny this guy is the son of God. I mean, he, he is something, he is from God, there's no doubt about it. And yet, they, so they believed in him on one level, and yet they were unwilling to act on their faith. Knowing the truth and agreeing with the truth is not the same as trusting Christ to save and satisfy your soul. It's only when you have eyes of faith to see the glory behind the sign that you respond with worship because you realize you're looking at the Son of God, at the Savior. And of course, His death and resurrection, the ultimate display of glory, that is the basis of our faith. Therefore, we boast only in the cross, not in miracles. We don't pursue miracles or require miracles to believe. We allow them to point us to the one in whom we do believe. So let's keep our eyes on Christ. Let's behold the unfathomable glory of his gospel. Let's rest in the finished and final work of Christ, believing that he is our superior satisfaction. He is our hope that obliterates all other competing desires. We don't have to constantly be entertained with media or instantly gratified with self-indulgence. We can wait patiently for the Lord's return. We can endure hardship and we can be content in a world of discontentment because we have confidence that by faith we are united to Christ. By faith we have a relationship with the one who's brought the new wine. The wine that satisfies our souls. The gospel wine. We have every spiritual blessing in Him. So this morning... As John has given us the very first sign, the first recorded sign of Jesus. He's wanted us to see that Jesus cares so we can bring our burdens to him in the manner he provides. Jesus captivates and behold his glory. Take long looks, long deep looks at his glory. And Jesus can. He is able. So believe in him. Let's pray together.